In the age of exploration, as maps were being created of new worlds that were being discovered, the unknown regions were often decorated with images of sea serpents and other horrors and terrors of the deep. These unknown areas struck fear in the heart of the average mariner, for there be monsters. Welcome to the podcast about everything. My name is Don Mast, I'm your host, and this is episode number 16 for There Be Monsters. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Don Mast, and I'm your host on the podcast about everything. And I'm the co-founder of Rough House Marketing based here in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and I'm a multi-million dollar producer, award-winning tech and advertising executive, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a hubby and dad, and I'm also an anti-collector. Uh, I collect things like noisy Edison phonographs, uh, old smelly books, yeah, and uh, hard to see creepy tintypes and old cameras. So on that note, I'd like to introduce, and I'm not saying this be because you're older, but I'd like to introduce my partner in crime, Mike Allison. Hi, I'm the much older Mike Allison, and uh, I'm an artist, I'm an architectural re restorer, I'm a former museum curator, I'm an amateur historian and folklorist, and uh, besides that, I'm a salty dog who sailed the seven seas. <laughs> um, okay, I'm sure you are, uh, but I'm more concerned, you know, with what you're wearing. What are you wearing? Oh, it's, it's, it's my special outfit, Dawn. Um, it's for today's podcast. I just want to set the mood. Um, that's not really a special outfit. That's an eye patch and a Tycron hat and a big feather. Uh, well, we're talking serpents and light monsters, and I thought this outfit would help. It might have been more effective if the glue holding the plastic par parrot on my shoulder had held. But the parrot kept falling off, and now, now I feel a little silly. I hope you're happy. <laughs> well, I appreciate you for joining me once again, my friend. And uh, we need to stay on topic here. As you know, August is cryptid month. And so let's start with that. Uh, can you explain what a cryptid is for those listeners who may not know? Sure. So cryptids are mainly plants animals and other critters uh, not recognized by the scientific community or thought to be alive while generally assumed to be extinct. Cryptids are creatures whose existence is based on alleged sightings with varying degrees of supporting evidence. Some of these alleged creatures have origins spanning that to that of antiquity and so with their presence believed to have been recorded in myths and legend. While others are thought to have taken new evolutionary paths, and evolve from previously existing creatures into new variations. Hmm. So in other words, they're fake. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so, so what springs to mind for me really is Nessie. You know, Loch Ness Monster, of course. Legendary sea monsters, you know, that you've, you've seen in old maps and books and things. The uh, you know, Chupacabra. And also, of course, my favorite, Bigfoot. Yep. And this month, we will cover a bunch of them. The myths, the legends, the sightings, the evidence, all of it. 
We'll be talking about folklore about flying creatures like the Thunderbird and the Ropen, the apparitions of upright canids called the Dogmen, mm. and, and perhaps the most famous North American cryptid of all, who you've already mentioned, Bigfoot. Yeah. So this week we're going to start out with stories of sea serpents and lake monsters. And these are stories as old as time. Hmm. You make it sound like they're really ancient legends. Yeah, there's some of the earliest stories mankind has told. And often they're integral parts of creation myths. Uh, in a lot of these stories, we find the chief god or the creator god in the role of a hero slaying a sea serpent. It's a widespread theme in the ancient Near East and Indo-European mythology. There's characters like Lotan and Hadid, the Leviathan and Yahweh, Tiamat and Marduk, Ilyanka and Tarhunt, Yamu and Baal in the Baal cycle, for example. The turbulent sea represents primal chaos and is personified by a gigantic serpent. The hero or creator being brings order from chaos by slaying the serpent. The Hebrew Bible has less mythological descriptions of large sea creatures as part of creation under God's command, such as the Tanamim mentioned in the book of Genesis one twenty one, and the great serpent of Amos 9.3. In the Greek story of the Aeneid, a pair of sea serpents killed Lachuan and his sons when he argued against bringing the Trojan horse into Troy. Ah. In antiquity, in the Bible, dragons were envisioned as huge serpentine monsters, which means that the later image of the dragon with two or four legs and bat wings came much later in the Middle Ages. Stories depicting sea-dwelling serpents may include Babylonian myths of Tiamat, who we've mentioned, the myths of Hydra, Scylla, Cletus, and Echinida, in the Greek mythology, and even the Leviathan of the Bible. Huh. In Norse mythology, Jormungandr was a mm. sea serpent so long that it encircled the entire world. It meant world serpent. Some stories report of sailors mistaking its back for a chain of islands. Sea serpents also appear frequently in later Scandinavian folklore, particularly in that of Norway. An apparent eyewitness account is found in Aristotle's Historica Animillum. Strabo makes reference to an eyewitness account of Dead Seek's creature cited by Posidonius. <laughs> excuse me. Oh, the Greeks. Yeah, an what an interesting name. It has Poseidon <laughs> in it. On the coast of the northern Levant. And, of course, the Levant is that area of Syria and mm -hmm. Palestine. Mm -hmm. he, he reported the following, as, the as for the plains, the first beginning at the sea is called Macros, or Macroplane. Here it is reported was seen a fallen dragon, the corpse of which was about 100 feet in length and so bulky that horsemen standing on either side of it could not see each other. Its jaws were large enough to admit a man on horseback, and each flake of its horny scales exceeded an oblong shield in length. The creature, who was seen by Posendius, a philosopher, sometime between 130 and 51 BC, um, Hans Agreed, the national saint of Greenland, gives an 18th century description of a sea serpent. And this would be in July of 1734. 
His ship sailed past the coast of Greenland, and when suddenly those on board saw a most terrible creature, resembling nothing they saw before. The monster lifted its head so high that it seemed to be higher than the crow's nest on the mainmast. The head was small, the body short and wrinkled. The unknown creature was using giant fins to propel itself through the water. Later, sailors saw its tail as well. The monster was longer than our entire ship. 1848, on the 6th of August, Captain McHugh of the HMS Dalis and several of his officers and crew en route to St. Helena um, saw a huge creature, uh, a sea serpent, which was subsequently reported and debated in the London Times. The vessel sighted what they assumed was an enormous serpent between the Cape of Good Hope and St. Helena. The serpent was witnessed to have been swimming with about four feet of its head above the water, and they believed there was another 60 feet of the creature in the sea. Captain McQuayo said that the creature passed rapidly, but so close under our lee quarter that had it been a man of my acquaintance, I should have easily recognized his features with the naked eye. According to seven members of the crew, it remained in view for about 20 minutes. Another officer wrote that the creature was more like a lizard than a serpent. Hmm. And a report was published in the Illustrated London News on the 14th of April, 1849, of a sighting of a sea serpent off the Portuguese coast by the HMS Plumper. <laughs> and have great names for ships. Uh, on the morning of the 31st of December, 1848, um, nearly due west of Oporto, I saw a long black creature with a sharp head Moving slowly, I should think about two knots or 2.3 miles per hour. Its back was about 20 feet, if not more, above the water, and its head, as near as I could judge, from six to eight or uh, 1.8 feet. There was something on its back that looked like a mane, and as it moved through the water, it kept washing about. But before I could examine it more closely, it was too far astern. Wow. So that is all the news that we have for you today from the Greek times. No, just kidding. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> um, so it, it seems to me, first of all, some of those animals actually sound like they look like me when I get out of a long bath, you know, wrinkled and wet and nasty. Uh, but uh, it seems like we have some historical sightings. You know, a lot of these descriptions sound pretty similar to, like these these serpentine humped creatures with you know fringe or mane that's and, and you know it's it's almost like they're horse-like or dog-like even you know with their heads yeah it's pretty much creates a type and you'll see as we go on as we describe more and more of these creatures yeah the it stays true to type um and we have plenty more reports uh, but it raises a few questions. Okay, so first off, the obvious question is, what are these people seeing? And what kind of experiences are they having? I mean, these are shared experiences. You have a whole crew of people on a ship all saying, oh, this thing. How have these experiences been shaped by the older stories we mentioned? You know, these are cultures where people believe the Greek myths, they believe the Bible, they believe their own religious stories, and yet all these stories have these tales of sea serpents and dragons and things. Right. And, you know, what about the the creatures that are recorded in existing lakes, you know, or in, 
existing lakes. Uh, since we are talking about Europe, you know, what about lake monsters like Nessie? Well, most of these creatures' origins are deeply intertwined with regional folklore. So just to give you an example, I would like to tell you the story of the Lambton Worm. The story revolves around John Lampton, an heir of the Lampton estate in County Durham, and his battle with a giant worm or dragon, if you wish, that had been terrorizing the local villages. As and with most of these stories, the details change with each telling. That's what makes it folklore. The story states that young John Lampton was a rebellious young man who missed church one Sunday to go fishing in the River Ware. And so John receives a warning from an old man or a witch, depending on who tells the story. Hmm. That no good can come from missing church on Sunday. <laughs> so, so it sounds to me like, you know, all the other folklore tales that we've ever talked about, that there are several variations or several ways that it has been told over the years. Yeah. And each generation adds details and things like that. Um, it's like our white lady story where we just keep adding details to it. Ah. Um, so John Lampton doesn't catch anything until the church service ends, at which point he does catch something, a little eel type creature with nine holes in each side of its head that looks like a salamander. Now, remember back then, salamanders were creatures that were supposed to have mystical qualities. Right. Okay? Mm -hmm. Depending on the version of the story, the worm is no bigger than a thumb. Or it can be up to three feet long. In some versions, it has legs. and others, it looks more like a snake or a serpent. At this point, the old man returns. Though in some versions, it's a totally different character. John declares he's catched the devil and proceeds to throw the thing away by throwing it down a well. The old man then issues further warnings about the beast, which John promptly forgets, <laughs> and then goes on to grow up. But later, as a penance for his rebellious youth, he joins the Crusades. Because the story is often said to have taken place in the 14th century, he likely fought in the Barbary Crusades. Ah. Eventually, the worm grows extremely large, the well becomes poisoned, the villagers <laughs> start to notice their livestock going missing, oh, and discover that the fully grown worm has emerged from the well and has coiled itself around a local hill. Ooh. Earlier... And local versions of the legend associate the hill with a hill called Worm Hill in Fatfield. In most versions of the story, the worm is large enough to wrap itself around the hill seven times. It's said that one can still see the marks of the worm on the wor on Worm Hill. However, in other versions, the hill is Penshaw Hill, on which the Penshaw Monument still now stands. And you can visit both of their actual places. The worm terrorizes the village, eating sheep, preventing cows from producing milk, snatching away small children. It then heads towards Lampton Castle, where Lord John's aged father manages to sedate the creature. And what becomes a daily ritual of offering it the milk of nine good cows, or 20 gallons, put into a trough or a vat. Hmm. A number of brave villagers take weapons to kill the beast, but they're quickly slaughtered by it. When a chunk is cut off the worm, it simply reattaches itself. Visiting knights try to assault the beast. None survive. When annoyed, the worm uproots trees and creates devastation by waving around the uprooted trees like a club. Wow. So we have this <laughs> growing monster. It's terrorizing the entire countryside. I mean, it sounds nasty. 
Um, it's impervious to to being killed by by all the people that have tried, and it must be placated by the Lord of the manor. And when it's attacked, you know, its parts rejoin. I mean, it sounds oh, it just it just sounds nasty. It sounds like like the Hydra from the you know the, the labors of Hercules. Yep, you got it. After seven years, John Lampton returns from the Crusades to find his father's estates in ruin because of the worm. John decides to fight it, but first seeks guidance of a wise woman or a witch near Durham. Is it that same witch? Well, it depends on the version of the story. Some people say it's the same one. She hardens his resolve to kill the beast by explaining his responsibility for the worm, because you know he, did, he missed church on Sunday. She tells him to cover his armor in spearheads and fight the worm in the river where, where it now spends its days wrapped around a giant rock. The witch tells John that after killing the worm, he must then kill the first living thing he sees, or else his family will be cursed for nine generations and will not die in their beds. Uh, so, well, finally, a family curse, you know, that's the only thing missing from this story, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and as we talk in future episodes about more British folklore, you're going to find a lot of family curses. Oh. Um, John prepares his armor, uh, according to the instructions, and arranges with his father that when he's killed the worm, he will sound his hunting horn three times. And on this signal, his father is to release his favorite hound, so it'll run up to John, who will then kill the dog, avoiding the curse. Mm. So he fights the worm by the river. The worm tries to crush him wrapping itself in its coils, but it cuts itself on the spikes that were mounted on his armor. And the pieces of the worm fall into the river and are washed away before they can reform. Eventually, the worm's killed, and John sounds his hunting horn three times. Unfortunately, John's father is so elderly and so excited that the beast is dead that he forgets to release the hound and rushes out to congratulate his son. Oh. But, being the good son, John cannot bear to kill his father, and so after they meet, they release the hound anyway and kill it, but it's too late. And thus, nine generations of Lamptons are cursed, so they will not die peacefully in their beds. And that's the end of the story. This curse seems to have held true for at least three generations, probably wow. helping to contribute to the popularity of this story. Um, Robert Lampton, first generation, drowned. Second one, um, a colonel of foot was killed at Marston Moor. Wow. William Lampton died in the Battle of Wakefield. And the ninth, Henry Lampton died in his carriage crossing Lampton Bridge in 1761 on the 26th of June. Uh, General Lampton, Henry's brother, is said to have kept a horsewhip by his bedside to ward off evil. And he died in his bed of old age. Wow. So... This all sounds familiar. It sounds like stories of, of Perseus and, of course, you know, St. George, you know, s saving the day by slaying this terrible aquatic monster. But, you know, tell me about Loch Ness. You know, what about Nessie? Well, if you want to talk about ancient folklore, this is it. So reports of a monster inhabiting Loch Ness date back to ancient times. And by the way, Nessie isn't the only lock monster in Scotland. There are many. Mm. Notably, st local stone carvings by the Picts depict a mysterious beast with flippers. So the first written account appears in a biography of St. Columbia, 
from 565 AD. According to that work, the monster bit a swimmer and was prepared to attack another man when St. Columbia intervened, ordering the beast to go back, you know, like Gandalf, you shall not pass. <laughs> it obeyed, and over the centuries, only occasional sightings were reported. Many of these alleged encounters seemed inspired by Scottish folklore, which is just chock-a-block full with mystical water creatures. Right, but but all that research and money that was spent trying to find Nessie, you know, that is much more modern, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Here we go. In 1933, the Loch Ness Monsters legend began to grow because at that time, a road adjacent to Loch Ness was finished, offering an unobstructed view of the lake. In other words, you could drive the whole way around the lake and see the whole thing. In April, a couple saw an enormous animal, which they compared to a dragon or a prehistoric monster. And after it crossed their car's path, it flopped into the water and disappeared. The incident was reported in a Scottish newspaper and numerous sightings followed. In December 1933, the Daily Mail commissioned Marmaduke Weatherall, a big game hunter who liked to portray himself as a living version of Alan our old friend Alan Quartermain, <laughs> to locate the sea serpent. Along the lake shore, he found huge footprints that he believed belonged to a very powerful, soft-footed animal about 20 feet long. However, on closer inspection, zoologists at the Natural History Museum determined that the tracks were identical. They weren't separate and were made with an umbrella stander and ashtray that had a hippopotamus leg as a base. <laughs> Weatherall's exact role in the hoax was uncertain, but this would not be the last time he tries. The news only seemed to spur efforts to prove the monster's existence, and one year later, in 1934, the English physician Robert Kenneth Wilson photographed the alleged creature. The iconic image, known as the surgeon's photograph, right. appeared to show the monster's small head and neck. The Daily Mail printed the photograph, sparking an international sensation. Many people speculated that the creature was a plesiosaur, a marine reptile that went extinct 65.5 million years ago. A couple of points of interest. In 1994, it was revealed that, Wilson, revealed that Wilson's photo was a hoax hmm. that was spearheaded by a revenge-seeking Weatherall. Wow. The monster was actually a plastic and wooden head attached to a, a submarine. In 1933... Well, that just happened to be the year that King Kong was released. <laughs> it featured an image of a brontosaurus swimming across the lake that looked just like the surgeon's photo. Wow. The photo itself was published, guess when? The April 1st edition of the Daily Mail. <laughs> In 2018, researchers conducted a DNA survey of Loch Ness to determine what kind of animals lived in the water. There were no signs of a plesiosaur or other such large animal, but they did find the presence of numerous large eels. And another character involved in this, the charming and epically bearded researcher Adrian Shine, had run the Loch Ness Research Project for many years, and even he accepted the latest findings. And that did not make the Scottish tourist industry very happy, because actually Nessie, the real impact of Nessie was to pump an average of about $80 million a year into the Scottish economy. Wow. That's amazing that Nessie could do that. 
<laughs> or the story of, I should say. Well, it's not just Nessie. Um, we'll be getting. We'll be talking about this some more when it when we get into North America. But well, let's well, go ahead. Well, let's go ahead and talk about you know our neighborhood. You know the Americas. Yeah. You know, isn't there a mural of a sea monster up in Massachusetts? You know, I I, I think there's a, a mural and a museum of oddities as well. Yep. As, and it's really an interesting story. Um, the most amazing sea serpent encounter in the New World revolves around literally hundreds of eyewitness accounts of a hundred foot long, large eyes, sharp toothed, scaly reptilian beast, which is said to lurk in the waters off the harbor of Gloucester in the Atlantic's coastline. Wow. During the summer of 1817, the world was astonished by eyewitness reports of an unknown marine animal which had apparently decided to make its temporary home in the harbor off Gloucester. Located just north of Boston in the lower portion of Cape Ann, for almost an entire month, witnesses from all walks of life reported encounters with what they universally described as a sea serpent. It's particularly significant as Gloucester has always been a fishing community filled with men and women who not only make their living off, but were very familiar with the animals of the sea. And it was described as between 80 and 100 feet in length, with a head as broad as a horse and a foot-long, horn-like appendage coming out of its skull. Oh. The scaly monstrosity was compared to a row of casks by some eyewitnesses because they claimed the creature was so well-jointed it could literally double back upon itself. Hmm. So it's your typical multi-humped, writhing sea serpent. Nasty. While this... While the report of the serpent began to rise in fame, it really made an impact uh, after 1817 when the two, two women claimed to have seen the creature swimming in the harbor. But the real action started in 1918 when accounts of the animal began filtering from ship's captains, ship's carpenters, and clergymen. There's another mass sighting in 1960. It's really interesting, though. Of all the creatures we're talking about, this one is really heavily documented, and yet, unlike Nessie and Champ and some of these other creatures, this one's been virtually forgotten. Hmm. Wow. Well, that would bring us to North America and the smaller waterways. The you know we could talk about lake monsters. Oh yeah. Oh, and we've we've got them by the ton. <laughs> so let's get started, all right? And we'll give you some descriptions and maybe some aspects of folklore where they came from. So we have the Lake Mendo, Wisconsin monster called Bozo, or Bozo. Uh, it's a it's a serpent. And it's sometimes mistaken for a log. <laughs> I was first seen in eighteen sixty. It's said to play pranks on chase, uh, like chasing boats and tickling bathers' feet. Doesn't eat anybody, but you know it likes to tickle their feet. And the local arts and crafts culture news website has taken the monster's name as its own name. Hmm. Uh, we have uh, Lake Okanagan in British Columbia, Columbia, which is the home of one of the more famous ones, good old Ogopogo. Ogopogo is green, has three humps in the water, and a horse-like bearded head. Ogopogo is the typical sea monster. 
1926 first sighted to, and up through 2011. And just like the Lambden Worm, there's a folk song. Oh, boy. Because uh, his mother was an earwig, his father was a whale, a little bit of head and hardly any tail. And Ogopogo was his name. <laughs> <laughs> so what about Pennsylvania, Don? Oh, we, we got anything in Pennsylvania? Yes, we do. And, you know, I've had such a hard time saying this. In Lake Tidiuskung, we have the Pennsylvania Tidi. And it's has blue and gray scales. And it lives, of course, at the very bottom of the lake. But yet people have seen it from like 1960 to present and uh, uh sounds like a pretty frightening beast to me but then we also and, have go ahead but pretty it sounds pretty well i guess yeah it's but, not green no <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we go back to british columbia we have this uh thesis lake and they have this lake monster it's it, or it could be called the canadian lizard and it's been sighted a couple of times over on the vancouver island side of canada but the creature was first encountered by two teenage boys in 1972 they say and the police investigate uh, investigation sprung up that you know the way they described it it was an aquatic reptilian humanoid standing about five feet tall and you know it, it looked like a human lizard with a large head that was covered with barb spikes Four days later, two men reported the same creature in the lake swimming. I wonder if it was doing a backstroke. And, and stated that the lizard was covered in silvery scales. And it kind of looked like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, wow. And So, so this, could, this could actually be not a cryptid, but a scripted. <laughs> Somebody watched a little too much chiller theater i would i would think so yes <laughs> and then we have lake manitoba over in manitoba we have the manipogo ah yeah and then along the same lines over in link over in lake winnipegosis we over in manitoba we have the winnie pogo and of course in crescent lake over in newfoundland and uh, labrador we have cressy but one of my favorites is over in Lake Simcoe in Ontario. It's Igapogo, um, also known as the Kempenfelt Kelly. And How it did is, they get that? I know, right? It has been documented yeah. many times throughout history, most notably in 1952 and 1962. And a large sonar report in 1983 and also it was shared in a videotape in 1991 so you know through the years of course it's been retold many different ways and the description of this Kempenfelt Kelly is it's a gray green of course creature between 10 to 12 feet with a stovepipe neck and a dog-like face and the most compelling evidence to date is the video taken in 1991 while a hydroplane racer was preparing for a, his race, his future race there in the lake. One of the, the racer's boats actually broke down. And so it forced him to, to really kind of stop and right there on the lake, make repairs. And so, you know, he opened the drive hatch of, the, of this boat, of this racer. 
And, you know, he started to make repairs. And when he opened the hatch of the boat, you know, the creature arose vertically in front of him. And, and after a few moments of panic, of course, you know, by people on the shore, the creature just simply sank back into the lake. And it's so, wow. yeah, that, that could be a little creepy. That's a good documentation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it, it, it's crazy that they have multiple people right there on the shoreline that were able to verify that they saw this thing. And then we have in Ontario, Muskrat Lake, a creature called Mussy. Back to you. Okay. Well, um, a lot of pogos, aren't there? <laughs> And a lot of things that are very difficult to say. Yeah, well, a lot of these are derived from uh, Native American terms. Right, right. So, and bearing that in mind, here's probably the most Native American. We have in Lake Superior in Ontario, we have uh, Misipishu. Hmm. And Misipishu is really an outlier here because Misipishu has the head and claws of a panther. Oh, wow. but is covered with scales and spines. And it's based on an Ojibwe legend. Uh, he is actually a pretty frightening character. And he has a natural enemy, uh, which we will be talking about. He, his enemy is the Thunderbird. Oh. And so we'll be talking about the Thunderbird next week. So Misipishu will come back wow. to visit us again. So we have Lake Pepin in Minnesota, and we have Pepe. Oh. And we have and Lake Ontario in Ontario and New York. It's a shared lake. Uh, we have Kingsty. And then another part of Lake Ontario, we have uh, Gassian Dethea. <laughs> and Gassian Dethea is a dragon that dwells in lake, the lakes and rivers of Canada. And especially in Lake Ontario. And the dragon, now this is an out, another outlier, flies on a trail of fire and actually breathes fire. So this is a more traditional dragon creature. But once oh. again, dates back to Native American myths. Hmm. So if there are any forest fires around that lake, you know, you never know. You got it. Wow. And you better hope, you better hope the Thunderbird comes because the Thunderbird will bring the rain, the thunder, and the lightning from its eyes, and will extinguish the fire. There you go. And, and, yeah. then, and then we move back, of course, to Ontario, to Lake, and all of these have crazy names, Timis Cayman-ing. <laughs> it's, it's a lake there in Ontario, as I mentioned, and they have a creature called the Mugwump, and it's the Algonquin yep. word for leader. And, you know, again, we're going back to the whole Native American uh, uh, ideal of this, of the legend here. In Nebraska, we have the uh, Alkali Lake Monster. No, that's, a, that's Alkali. Alkali, yeah, Alkali. Like, oh, yeah. it's all the Sorry. Same. No problem. And, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, well, some claim that this lake monster was a hoax invented to sell newspapers. No. no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite common. You know, there's really not a whole lot of magic here. You know, it's you know, they're saying it's a it's a creature that's kind of like an alligator and a, a rhino, and it has a very unsavory stench. <laughs> and it's all rolled into one. And of course, it's about a hundred feet in length. And whatever sure. it is, it it surely did cause a big stink. 
Well, you gotta love a stinky monster. I mean, <laughs> you know, if, if it's one thing to be horrible, but to be horribly stinky, that's that sort of uh, nails it right there. Exactly, but I mean, it just seems terrifying to me that it's this like huge alligator-like rhino horned creature that is like a hundred feet long. You'd think we'd see these things just like everywhere. But, yeah, it's your average alligator rhino hybrid. Of course, know. yeah. <laughs> in 2020, you know, uh, you never yeah, know. <laughs> true. You're, that's right. That's right. It is 2020. <laughs> and so then we move on to the White River over in Arkansas, and we have Whitey. And the first official sighting of this creature dates back about 1912. And although, you know, some of these stories have the monster overturning a canoe of, you know, an Indian tribe. It was also said to have sunk a Confederate gunboat during the Civil War. And, you know, so we have a couple of accounts there, but also we have another account, an eyewitness account, with the creature frequently described as having a gray-colored, elephant-like sort of skin, a horn or this, like, bone thing protruding from its forehead, and having a spiny backbone. And, you know, it, it sounds kind of like the, the weird, creepy stuff that you've described earlier. And it's about mm-hmm. between 30 and 40 feet long. It's about as wide as a car. And it could be about three cars long. And some people said that it could actually be the size or longer of a boxcar. But, it, but, wow. it, but here's the weird thing. Some people say that it makes a noise. It's a cross between a cow's moo and a horse's neigh. Hmm. Yeah, I don't hmm. even know. I don't even know how to like, like Manette. I don't know. It's it. You you'll have to work on that uh, for all of our listeners at home making that noise and send it to us. We'd like to hear it. Just a, just a little aside. When we used to live in the country, uh, during the summer we'd have our windows open, uh, and of course all the wonderful noises from the from the woods around us would echo into our bedroom, and. There was this unbelievably weird sound. It would actually alter. It would repeat and repeat and then alter and then turn into a totally different sound. Oh, wow. And it, it was it was a little creepy. You know, it woke us up a couple of times. Um, I'm a fairly light sleeper and I'd hear this weird moaning. It sounded like some sort of tropical bird, but then it would chirp and growl and oh, wow and it, and the sound would alter over a period of about 10 minutes it would make these cries so one day i didn't have anything better to do so i went on a wildlife site and i was looking listening to animal noises and you know what animal has the largest range of sounds it makes no the red fox it was a fox wow <laughs> yeah so you know we, we, as human beings, of course, we have this wonderful ability to creep ourselves out. <laughs> of course, yeah. Our minds play and tricks, it, yes. And it, well, but no, I mean, you hear this stuff and, you know, you go, wow, what is that? You know, um, so anyway, um, I interrupted you. You should continue. Please. Oh, that, that's okay. I mean, you, you have me creeped out now by the, by the red fox. And <laughs> I'm going to include a, a link. Uh, in the profile above of you know uh, the noises of the red fox dude just so you all can can hear that as well yeah um, 
And then we go to, let's see here, we go to Idaho, uh, Payette Lake. We have this one called uh, Slimy Slim or Charlie. <laughs> and, you know, the, the region's native people have, you know, long feared this evil spirit dwelling, you know, deep in this lake. You know, and the 20th century was dotted with reports of sightings of this dinosaur-like creature. And the national press initially called the monster, as I'd mentioned, the Slimy Slim. But then the McCall star had this contest and they decided to rename their local celebrity uh, to Charlie. And so Charlie was first described by eyewitnesses as a huge log floating in the water. Wow. Where have we heard that before? And (laughs) and then uh, subsequent sightings were described as a 35 foot long beast with a dinosaur type head, a pronounced jaw with humps like camels and had a shell like complexion. And, you know, that, that to me just kind of, ew, ew, I don't know. I mean, people really had great imaginations uh, back then. Um, another one, which I know is a favorite of yours, Folks Lake <laughs> over in Indiana, we have the Beast Obusco, a.k.a. Oscar the Turtle. And so <laughs> thousands of people have made their way to this town of... Go ahead. If you want to pronounce it, Shurabusco, 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 Indiana in the late forties to witness and, you know, to, to be able to see this creature who is about the size of a Volkswagen, you know, it's a like monster about the size of a Volkswagen and it gripped the town for weeks. You know, that hunters were even introduced to it or introducing, you know, this turtle to the lakes. And you know what? This is a huge beast that's a gigantic, well, it looks like a gigantic snapping turtle. And it has a really yeah. cool name. Yeah, you, you, you can't beat Oscar the turtle. I'm Oscar. sorry, you just can't. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, like Memphrey Magog, aren't you glad I got that one? Mm. Vermont, in Vermont uh, and Quebec, it, it's a shared lake. Uh, we have Memphrey. Uh, which lies partially in the U.S., and the monster, their monster is named Memphrey. Uh, we have Lake Manitou in Indiana also. Uh, Manitou is actually uh, a Potawatomi word for evil spirit. Oh, wow. And um, some people have heard this sort of curse thing called Gichi Manitou. Um, Flathead Lake in Montana, they have the flat, Flathead Lake monster named Flessy, which is a serpent with antlers. So imagine a giant snake, but with the antlers of a deer. And that's a Kuatani uh, tribal legend. I would not want to imagine or see that. Um, No. We also have another shared lake, Lake Champlain. Of course, this is a popular one. It's so you you could go there and, and it's around New York, Vermont, Quebec. And the creature there is called Champ, and it's a reptilian creature, about 40 feet long in length, with a super long neck, flippers, of course, or what some people may have seen as, like, web feet. Um, and this one's interesting because it is possibly capable of echolocation. I'm not sure really how they determined that. But centuries ago, the Iroquois people called this creature uh, Lake Champlain. 
Tato Skok. And whether it's the same boat sinking, camera blurring, horned serpent that troubles the waters today, we really can't be sure. I mean, back in 1819, there was a captain, Captain Crumb, not Captain Crunch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he had a ship out in the bay and he saw this black monster that he claimed stretched about 187 feet long. And according, wow. yeah, and, and according to him, the monster had a head like a seahorse. And the eyes, the color of a peeled onion. That was a unique description. And it had three teeth and a white star on its forehead. <laughs> three teeth doesn't sound that fearsome. No, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, and then we jump to the Hudson River, which I'm sure there's lots of uh, unsavory things in that river. Uh, we, we have the Hudson River monster known as Kipsy. Mm -hmm. And then over in Lake Erie, where it's, I think it's more of the Ohio side, we have Bessie. It's a South Bay Bessie, as, as they call it. And then finally for me, we have over in Bear Lake in Idaho, we have the uh, uh, Utah Bear Lake Monster, as they call it. And it's uh, Isabella, which is a, a croc crocodilian creature mm -hmm. that supposedly crawls onto land and pursues prey on land. So it sounds aggressive to me. So I want to avoid that lake. But you know, but what a sweet name, Isabella. I know. Yeah. I mean it sounds yeah. all pretty and everything, but you know, if it's gonna come up and like, you know, hey, it's, there's it's Timmy. Eat you. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's Timmy, you know, out there building a sandcastle and all of a sudden Timmy's pulled into the water. I mean it's you know, Isabella got him. So wow. So uh, undergirding all of this, uh, in British Columbia, uh, there are legends that a descendant of the Lambton family emigrated to North America and brought the curse of the Lambton worm with him. Mm. And this is what began to populate the waters of America and Canada with horrible sea serpents. Wow. And, and these sea serpents just keep appearing. It seems like they're everywhere you know people keep seeing them and you know it's endless so what are we going to be exploring next week michael well next week we're going to look to the skies and we're going to explore legends of giant winged creatures things known as the thunderbird the rock and the roping yes i'm going to be roping in some pretty bad jokes on this one too uh, <laughs> So get ready for lots of more legends and folklore. Well, that sounds great. And I'm sure you'll have a uh, uh, interesting outfit uh, as well. Um, it's already planned, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I just want to take a moment, as always, uh, like we do, and just thank our listeners who put up with us trying to pronounce these crazy uh, <laughs> uh, names today and these crazy areas. And, you know, I, I appreciate your your support and, you know, I hope that you'll continue to share and subscribe to our show. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun doing this and I hope you're having as much fun listening to it. And if you like what you're listening to, please consider leaving a positive review on your streaming platform like Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, and the eight or nine others that we're, we're on. We're growing around the world. Haven't made it to Mars yet. No, but our no. worldwide audience is growing. Yep. Yes, it is. And, and we thank every single listener. And so 
on that note also you're listening but you may have a story you know you may have some little nugget that you want to share something unique we would love to hear about it there are a couple of ways to contact us you could email us via our addresses right up in our profile or you could hit us up on facebook where you could just go to facebook.com slash the podcast about everything you could also find us on instagram at podcast about everything or twitter at podcast about ev2 and be sure to check out all the really cool pictures and we have a couple of articles and things like that you know that just kind of you know uh draw out your imagination and you you know allows you to explore and draw your own conclusions and so we want to thank you for joining us for the podcast about everything be safe all be safe and be kind to each other because you never know when Isabella will come crawling out of the lake. Oh, boy. I better go get Timmy. Go get him. Quick. Lassie! <laughs> Wished lots had your gobs, I'll tell you, Zal, and half a story. Wished lots had your gobs, I'll tell you, the one. Once in the morning, Lampton went fishing in the yard. Catch the fish upon his yucky thought and awfully queer. No, what's the kind of fish it was, Jim Lampton couldn't tell. He wasn't fast to carry it, Jim, so he hoid it to the well. Wished lads had your gobs, I'll tell you, Zal, an awful story. Wished lads had your gobs, I'll tell you, the war. No, Lampton is inclined to gun, he'd frighten foreign wars. He joined a troop at night, said cared for neither wounds nor scars. Off he went to Palestine, where queer things him befell. He very soon forgot all about that funny one, do know well. Wish lads had your gobs, I'll tell you, Zal, an awful story. Wish lads had your gobs, I'll tell you, put the one. With a warmy goody, 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 with an awful size. He'd a great big Awful wall and his queer gannons on. Soon crossed the seas and got to the lugs of Gordon Brave Sir John. So Baggy come from Palestine, put it in three halves, and I put it in all them pens and ships and cars. Wish lads had your gob, I'll tell you, Zan, an awful story. Wish lads had your gobs, I'll tell you, put the warm. We know you know how all the folk on both sides of the way Lost lots of sheep and lots of sleep and late and more fear So let's have one the grave Sir John Kept the bends from harm Save goos and calves by making all To the famous Lampton Wall Wish lads I had me gob I've tell you all An awful story of Sir John's Clever job in the awful Lampton Wall